Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan. Today, we have a legend of a guest. This is Sue Altman. Uh, she's one of the executive directors at Banner and Paw, but more specifically, doing amazing charity work on the island of Phuket. Phuket has been good to us and Living Waters Phuket. We're going to dig deep into her story and you're going to find out all about how she got involved in this in this charity work, but specifically what they're doing and how you can help. Uh, if you want to know a little bit about who we are, Fruiting Body is a medicinal mushroom company located on the island of Phuket, Thailand. Um, I'm not sure if our products are out yet, depending on when we air this, but you can check us out at fruiting-body.com. If you're tired of listening to me ramble right now, go down. We got chapters. You can navigate by different sections of this podcast because it's probably going to be an hour or so long and I tend to ramble. So if you want to get rid of me, just go click that and move forward. Do not forget to like, subscribe and comment. We're almost, I think, at 3,000 subscribers. We're probably going to hit 10,000 next week if you help us out. So just go subscribe. Share with all your friends and family. It'd be a great lot of help to us. So without further ado, let's get this podcast started with Sue Altman. Hi, Brendan. Did I get it? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I'm not even drinking coffee. I have I have tea. I noticed that. Well, first, thanks for joining us. I always forget to thanks the guests. Very selfish of me. Pleasure. Thank you for joining. You're looking very lovely today. I hope the camera does it justice as well. Uh, This camera is a bit funny right now. That's because I'm in the lens. I'm looking a bit fat here. Okay, that's okay. (laughs) You are actually. (laughs) It was. Get this. Get this. Get this view off me. Go back to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're gonna jump right into it as we discussed before. Tell us about Sue Altman in Australia. What's your story? Sue Altman in Australia, I can barely remember. Um, I've spent pretty much the last 30 years in Asia, but uh, going back to to the dim dark ages, uh, I'm originally from Melbourne, um, seven generations up to me. There's now a few more, I guess. Uh, So, yeah, I'm an Aussie born and bred from Melbourne. Um, Then I, I went to school didn't do anything great at school. I was not one of these people who went on to university and ended up with lots of degrees and things. I basically went to the School of Hard Knocks and did all of my learning after, I, or most of my learning after I left school. Uh, my first job was working at Channel 9 and 3AK, which was a television station and radio station in, in, Melbourne. in Melbourne. Did you ever cross paths then with Tim Newton? Never. Never, because he's also in Melbourne and he was also doing this as well. Yeah. He's been on the podcast twice. Yeah, yeah, and Tim's a good friend of mine. Okay. Very good friend of mine. But uh, no, uh, Tim is a little bit younger than me, not much, a little bit. Uh, And no, we never crossed our paths, but this was back when I was 18 years old. Okay. Uh, So I, I, I sort of fell into advertising and really loved it and uh I was in what they called the traffic department, uh, which was scheduling of advertising in um, Channel 9. And then I worked in 3AK with uh, doing logs for uh, the was radio announcers. Just push announcers. the mic up a bit? Yeah, sure. Or, yeah, bring just it to yourself. It That's good. Perfect. Yep. Okay. And uh, then I went into uh, newspapers. And literally I, was, I worked in uh, suburban newspapers for a while again. I wanted to get into sales. The problem was women did not do sales. They only uh, worked in the office. They backed up the sales guys. 
and but no, I wanted to be part of it. So eventually, uh, I left, and then I went and worked for Avis Rent a Car, ah. and I ran two branches for Avis Rent a Car, and behind Avis, their their backs, I went out and did sales, and built up these two branches from being the bottom in Australia to the to- two top branches in Australia by going around to local businesses, big businesses uh, like Penguin Books, and I spoke to them and said, why do you let your um, staff who come from interstate get taxis all the time? Why don't you rent cars? So I started getting them to rent cars and um, got into sales. Mm. Uh, I then applied for a job at a company called Peter Isaacson Publications, uh, which was a company that did believe in women in sales. And uh, I started, I was about 25, I think. Um, Well, maybe a bit younger, actually. And uh, I was there for many years. Uh, They... They had many publications, a lot of trade, mainly trade publications that looked at all different industries. And uh, I went in and boldly said, uh, I want that publication, Travel Week. And uh, the owner, Peter Isaacson, um, laughed at me. And he said, yes, everybody wants Travel Week. It'll take you years to get Travel Week. So uh, they gave me three publications to start with. Australian Hospital, Aviation News and Graphics, which was printing, all totally men, male-dominated industries. And uh, I went in and did really well and to cut a long story short, three months later I got Travel Week and it was the number two travel trade publication in Australia uh, and my goal was to make it number one within a year and keep it there and mm. that's what I did. At I this, loved sales. At this point when we... That's vlogging advertising, basically. But this is now obviously pre-Instagram days. <laughs> I'm just messing around. We didn't even have computers. This, But when you're, when you're getting into the, the travel publication side, is was there any attachment to Southeast Asia? Were you, was there any, hey, where is this? Where is that located and kind of pushing you towards here? I mean, again, I'm just uh, kind of okay. assuming. So that's, a, no, that's a, a, probably a long way up. What happened was uh, just after I started with the travel week, um, the owner came to me one day and uh, he'd always done all of the international traveling and he had some of the male salespeople doing some of it for him. And he came to me and he said, uh, do you have a passport? And I said, no. He said, uh, okay, we're getting you a passport. Uh, in two weeks' time, you're going to Fiji and you're going to go and sell advertising there. Mm, okay, says me, so go. And first thing I had to find out was where was Fiji and a little bit of history on Fiji. Remember, no internet, mm. no Google. We didn't have any of that. So you, you had to research the old-fashioned way, get out the atlas and uh, and basically go to the library and find out information. I went, mm. and I'll never forget, my, my grandmother said to me, because this was a big deal, you know, I'm going on this overseas trip. And she was devastated that I was going and she said to me, do not eat, promise me, you do not eat any foreign food and you don't speak to any foreigners. 
a little difficult. And, of course, I've arrived in Fiji knowing nothing except that I'm only like 156 centimetres or five foot. Uh, And I've arrived over there and there's all these giants. Fijian people are very big people, you know, and sort of... uh, So it was was a real eye-opener for me and uh, that was my first trip. And then from there... um, he started sending me around Asia. What was it? What year was this? I'm oh, sorry, with your maybe tilted that way a bit towards uh, like, uh, there we go. What, what was it? What year was this? You were going to Fiji? Uh, late 70s. Late, so when they had coups and things. Have and you been, did you end up going back years later? Or is that kind of it? I used to go to Fiji um, at least three times a year. Mm. Uh, and in fact, uh, my current husband uh, and I—we were married there uh, 31 years ago. Well, this this is a Thailand podcast, but I almost went to Fiji. It's—I only have one regret in life. I didn't go to Fiji. I was living in Australia, right? And everybody, the class at the end of the year was going to Fiji, yeah. and I got homesick, and I was a little bitch, and I <laughs> went home. I went home. And it's the yeah. only, if someone says, "What's your biggest regret?" I'm like, I should have just went to Fiji because it's so hard to get to, but. It was a, I loved I loved it. It was what, like my what second was the, home. Could you explain a little bit about, I mean, going in the 70s to today and watching that uh, transition, maybe not just on the tourism side, but I'm going to assume on the diet side of the locals and watching them transition. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, okay, so Fiji um, was becoming a great destination for tourism. You know, it was one of um, the new up and coming, but really growing very, very quickly. Uh, lots of great hotels, you know, the regions, Sheratons and things like that. They, they, had, um, they did have political ups and downs there. And uh, on a couple of occasions, I went once and then they had a coup and just afterwards. And uh, then I went back and uh, I worked very closely with the Fiji Tourism Bureau and the Fiji, Fiji government. And I did a lot of promotion for them. Um, I was... They liked me a lot, in fact, when, uh, as I said, uh, my second marriage, we were married there and, and it was literally organised by the Fijian people and, and, and the um, foreigners who lived there who I knew, hotel gyms and, and things there. Uh, it, it, the food was always great. I love Fijian food. Uh, and there was quite good Western-style food available. Also great Indian food because... At that time 51% of the population was Indian. Really? Yeah. Why would that be? Um, they'd always, they'd come many years before and uh, to work there and they were hard workers and they like lived and they lab- Laborers. Yeah, mm. but they ended up really running all of the business and um, becoming 51% of the population. Wow. They then, with coups and different few different little uprisings and things, a lot of Indians left. I, but there's still, uh, I don't know what it is now, but I think it's probably around 48%. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it's, it's a huge, pop, huge population. I mean, Fiji is owned by the Fijians. Uh, and you, uh, I'm not sure of the laws these days, but you could always, you could lease land for a certain number of years, 90 years and things like that. Are they very distinct, like as in like, 
this whole Polynesian area, you yes. have Samoans. Like, is there a big difference if you were to say a Fijian, if someone that's from Fiji, Fijian? Yeah. And a Samoan, is there, they, I'm, I'm assuming they're probably rivals in sports and whatnot, but I mean, they're, distinctly. They're the same sort of, you can tell them apart, yes, uh, if you, if you're used to it, you know, it's like Asian people. A lot of people look at Asians and think they all look the same. Yeah, but when you when live you here live 30 Asia, years. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fijians, to me, are distinct, but they are big people. They're tall, um, and I'm very tall, and, and big-bodied people. Uh, you don't see too many slim mm. Fijians, you know, and, and fit, and they love their sport, but they, they're, you know, very big, solid people. When you're originally going there in the 70s, I mean, the transitions until these five-star hotels started showing up as well. Could you explain that a little bit? Okay, there were a lot of five-star hotels when I I first went there. Um, It was already becoming um, a very, uh, it was very famous and uh, Australians were their biggest and still today uh, Australians are their, I think, biggest uh, number of tourists. Mm. Uh, I haven't been for a long time and of course it's become a lot more modernised and things but it's still, when I see different videos and things, it's still the same old Fiji Um, and they still have the same political problems and in fact what's interesting is there was a man who came into power during the coups back in the late 70s, and his name was uh, Sitaveni um, Rambuka, and they all called him Rambo, because it was at the early days of, um, you the, know, Rambo, the, yeah, the Rambo movies, and uh, slice of, uh, you know, yeah. and he's just come back into power a week ago. So how, he's got to be, what, 70? Oh, um, more, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, so he's... He, he came in there, he, he had a coup and he came, came into power and he's always been in government and, and things, but now he's just come back into power again. So uh, Fiji's like a lot of these countries, the, the mm. political side roles and they have their good times and their bad times. But uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful country and they have over 300 islands. What was that, that drink? I, I tried- Carver. Did you, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming you've tried it. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. It's more like a like a downer or an opiate or. No, it's, well, it's made from uh, the yangona plant, which is a a root, and they they get the root and then they pound it into a powder and then they mix it with with water, and then when you take it, um, when you drink it, if you just have one cup, it's it's not the greatest tasting thing, you know. It's you sort of acquire a taste for it, but. Uh, it's, it tastes a little bit like muddy water with and looks like muddy water with something in it, but it numbs your tongue and your mouth and chill. You chill out, yeah. If, if you drink a lot of it, what was the kind of cultural purpose of, of this drink? I mean, I'm assuming they've been using it for hundreds of years, right? If, and and they do, and they still do, you know. And and it's um, it's quite a ceremony. You don't just sort of sit down and say, "Hey, do you want a cup of kava?" Um, or you sit down and you sit in a circle and there is somebody who sits at the head and makes the carver and then the bowl is passed around from one person to another. And and that is the way it is always done and it's the way it was, you know, it was done in the past. Like I said, it's not a matter of saying, like, would you like a cup of coffee? Would you like a, a, a cup of kava? Mm-hmm. Um 
But it's used for like ceremonies? Always for ceremonies. Like, uh, as uh, in like a harvest or? You can just finish a football game. Okay, there we go. And you come home, everyone, the footballers will all sit around and they'll, they'll uh, drink kava uh, or yangona. Mm. And uh, I, I hope I haven't got any Fijians out there who are going to say, well, she hasn't got quite got that right, but I'm pretty sure I've got it right. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, I've, I've had it on many occasions. But uh, like I said, it's always a, a very a traditional thing. But yeah, I had some friends when I was I was living in Queensland, Gold Coast, Southport mm-hmm. area, going to university, and they brought it back. And I just remember it was like, a, oh yeah, muddy water. I think I had a sip or something, and you went. Yeah. Now uh, to fast forward, you yeah. so with your with your current husband. Now he was he's involved in hotels. You said originally you guys were, came to Thailand and you're in Koh Samui. Can you explain? That transition, what led you guys to coming here? Okay, so um, this was the story I've been telling you is before I was with Tom. Uh, I, my son was one and a half when I started uh, with Travel Week. And for years I used to travel all the time internationally, um, mainly around Southeast Asia and South Pacific for Travel Week. Uh, but I, I've been to the States, I've been to Canada uh, and... I just always enjoyed traveling. I could live anywhere. And uh, when my son was about, uh, I think, 11, or maybe younger, actually, I met Tom. I knew Tom. Tom was a hotelier in Australia. And then uh, we, we got together, and uh, one thing led to another. We've, we actually met, even though we knew each other, we, we got together at a convention, let's say. Mm. as happens with some people. And uh, he had always wanted to work in Asia. And uh, then when we decided that we were going to get married and my son was, uh, how old was John? John was 15, I think, uh, maybe a bit younger. And uh, we decided, uh, okay, um, let's go. I said to him, look for a job in Asia and I only have two stipulations. I'm not going somewhere I'm going to get shot at and it must have an airport. So we went to, I was actually attending a conference in Hong Kong uh, for the Pacific Asia Travel Association and Tom came with me because uh, he was uh, looking for a new job and uh, he met uh, some hoteliers there and the next thing he was offered a job in Koh Samui. So, uh, and what, what year was this approximately? 89, I think. 89, wow. Yeah. I'm really bad on years. Tom's like What decade? Perfect. What de- decade? Yeah. Let's you know, go decade here. Tom's perfect. He's going to go, no, that was 92, you yeah. know. So, so you, I mean, you've been coming to Thailand and you can talk about that with the audience. You're talking, yeah. this is way before pre-tsunami like, oh, way before, kind of like way, way uh, before, like uh, near, and, nearly a trailblazer. Well, I used to come. I used to do um, a seven-week trip around Asia for Travel Week, and I would do Indonesia and and work my way from, from Australia to Indonesia and up through um, Singapore and Malaysia into Thailand and hated Thailand, hated Indonesia, mm-hmm. um, and I used to go to Jakarta and Bali. Very difficult to do business. Hated Thailand because back then it was a man's world. 
women, I mean, I would walk into her offices and I'd have appointments and they'd look at me and they'd say, oh, you're a woman. And I'd stand there and I'd, yeah. and I'd go, yeah, oh. And it was, it was difficult because even a lot of the business people were Thai. Um, there were foreigners, of course, hotel GMs and things who I used to deal with, but uh, everyone was always stunned when I walked in. You know, it was just, what's a woman doing here? And travelling on her own, you know. Mm. I had a lot of that. I used to have trouble checking into hotels. I'd be booked into five-star hotels. I'd walk up to the reception and they'd look past me. Hong Kong especially was was really difficult. Um, who are you travelling with? And I'd go, you have my reservation. And uh, so it, I, I always laugh when... You know, and I shouldn't, uh, but women complain today about how difficult it is in bus- business and, uh, you know, women have to fight for everything. Well, so fight for it. When did that all start to change? Um, like the mid-90s? It, it's always just been slow, you know, and I mean, it's, I think women have got it and people are going to come back about this. But Don't worry, we've got like people, eight viewers. People... <laughs> uh, I think women complain much too much these days about lots of things. And so we're not going to get into too much into that, but I yeah. really do. It's my, you know, sort of suck it up and... and, and so you're not, not a feminist or... I am, I believe that uh, salaries should be equal. If, if you're doing the same job that I'm doing, yes, we should get paid the same. I worked for a great guy, Peter Isaacson, uh, in, in Australia who did respect women and who, as I said, sent me travelling and things. We had a lot of uh, females work in our, our uh, company and guys, equal salary. The guys got, uh, you know, I, I was paid a certain salary, the guys were paid. The guys didn't get more than I did. We did the same job. Um, and I think you had to fight for it then and you have to fight for it now. Uh, you can't just go around complaining about it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, do some, and if you're not happy about it, go somewhere else. Go and get a job somewhere else. Uh, but there's just, uh, you know, I guess that's another, another yeah. conversation. That, that's that but, ho- the whole other YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I, Tom was, uh, was then, you know, Tom and I, we've been married this uh, next month will be 31 years. So mm. it's our second marriage for both of us. And uh, we moved from Australia. Uh, he moved first to Koh Samui. And then I told Peter Isaacson that I was resigning. And Peter Isaacson said, um, no, you're not. And I said, but I'm married now and I'm going to move to Koh Samui with my husband. He said, no, you're not. He said, you've been with me longer than you've been with him. You'll get over it. <laughs> So uh, it took me five months before I could actually leave. And then I took all of the Asian side of my job with me. He said to me, well, if you're going to be living in Asia, you may as well still keep working for us. And um, uh, so that's what I did. So you were the the first digital nomad? Probably, yes. Well, especially as I didn't even have a computer then. My secretary had a computer so I got one of the first laptops. Mm. Yeah. 
very interesting. So you're in Koh Samui. I mm-hmm. mean, let's say again, this that but could be it. This no podcast, internet. the first di- digital nomad <laughs> officially. Hey, you're in Koh Samui. You're still working for Peter Isaacson, and uh, yeah. specifically at this point, it's like travel publications. Okay, so I took on what I did is I set up my own company, and I took on other publications as well from around the world. I had publications like Der Spiegel, which is a very famous German publication. I had uh, other um, international travel publications. I had publications from the UK, daily newspapers and things. So I had some really good publications. uh, And I based myself uh, sort of out of Hong Kong. What what did that business... Not physically based myself. What was that kind of business model like when you, and I'm, I'm not on the ad and publication yeah. side, so I'm just going to assume that you have these magazines, these publications, and you're reaching out to local, let's say, companies in Thailand to okay. pay for advertising to get into them? That's right. So the travel publications, mainly hotels and airlines, were who we were, uh, and uh, people like the TAT. Would this be uh, publications that would go into, into, let's say, the back of the seat that no. Okay. Uh, they were trade publications, so they were uh, tra- telling the travel industry, as in tra- telling travel agents what is happening in other countries. And so a lot of travel agents in Australia, the way they would get information about what was happening in Fiji and what different hotels uh, were coming up, what changes were being made editorially uh, that would come into these publications and they would be these publications would be distributed to the travel trade. Okay, so it's more or less Not like consumer. information because pre-internet, yeah. information for the agents to be able to recommend to their clients. Exactly. So yeah. I'm going. I'm in this and not this line of business, but business where people need to make decisions, and sometimes it's in the best interest for those people to write certain articles um, to promote certain things. Is that how this operated as well? Or I don't know how much you can share with me there. Okay, so to rephrase that, let's just be like straight to the point without going around in a circle. I have a hotel in Koh Samui. You're a publication. You make the decision if my hotel goes in there and you have three other hotels, but you pick him because he makes good steak dinner. Or he spends more money on advertising. Is that usually how it is? Um, At this point, like you probably couldn't answer those questions twenty years ago, but no, I I I can. Um, There are a lot of publications who would sell um, advertising uh, to get editorial. If you wanted to become the top in your game, you had to have strict editorial rules so that the editorial department and the advertising department really didn't have a lot of communication. The editor and I from from Travel Week. It took us a long time to to trust each other and to get our teams to trust each other so that if my staff were out, my sales staff were out, and they saw something was happening, that there was a refurbishment going on at a hotel, uh, come in and tell the editorial team. If the editorial team saw something new coming up that could be good value for um, the advertising department, tell them. But it didn't mean that you sold advertising against editorial because that was a no-no. That lowered the standard of your publication. You could sell advertorials. Now, that means that, okay, um, let's say the Sheraton 
decided they want to promote the new Sheraton Hotel, but they want a page of editorial. Now, it might not have the editorial value that our editors think, so they would pay for it and they would get a page of advertising and a page of written editorial, but it would have a sign on that saying advertorial. Like paid promotion. Exactly. Um, so you, you have to be careful. A lot of publications all around the world would sell advertising for editorial and things. And yes, of course, if we had um, an advertiser who's spending, who buys 12 full pages in a year, of course, you are going to support that yeah. or, or look for good editorial or get them to feed you editorial to yeah, so it's, it's, I get it. It's more, you can't just be, let's say, selling out in some guy's building a hotel and, hey, promote this hotel that's coming in two months and then the travel agent sells the hotel and people show up and it's not even done. That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Everything has to, and, and it has to be the quality of what it is. You know, it's, it's like anything. You have to believe in your product. And if you're a salesperson, I mean, people always say to me, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're a top marketing person, you know, and all of this. And I go, you know what? I'm a sales rep. I've always been a sales rep. And they look at you as if you're mad and they say, oh, marketing and sales are two different things. They're not really. Yes, they are, but no, they're not. Because you are selling a, a product. And marketing means you have to let people know about that product and you have to sell it. They, they, they weave together. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes down to it, it's all about selling that product, whatever it is. They weave so, together, but the, both departments hate each other. <laughs> and that's when something doesn't work. Right. If you can work them together <clears throat> and have a sales and marketing department, which is the way hotels used to do it, then you're going to have a much better chance, I believe, um, in, in getting your product out there than if you've got the marketing department saying, oh, no, well, we're the ones that, you know, we get out there and market in the sales department. You have to have good at everything. It was, look, I used to, um, I always had, a, we had this meeting one time, my editor and myself, and we talked about it. And I said, well, let's get the editorial team and the sales and marketing team together. And I got up and I said, okay, I want to ask a question. What department is more important, the editorial or the sales department? Well, of course, the editorial said the editorial and the sales said the sales. And I said, you're wrong. You're equally as important. Without good journalists going out and writing good stories, no one is going to want to buy advertising. Mm -hmm. If you haven't got good salespeople going out and selling advertising and a lot of advertising to fill the spaces, there's nowhere to put the editorial. So that's why you need to work together and everyone is equally as important. And because you, you're in Samui, again, the first digital yep. nomad, was this primary, primarily in Koh Samui or were you traveling around all of Thailand and Southeast Asia? Uh, well, my husband did say to me at one stage, do you realize that in the last, um, 15 weeks, you have been away 13. He said, you've only been back for a few days here and there. So where so were you I, going? Oh, all around Asia. All I just around kept Asia. jumping, oh, okay. jumping on gotcha. planes. And, 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 and then I'd also, I used to have to go to conventions and things as well. So I, I started cutting it back a little bit. 
How was travel back then? I mean, today we got AirAsia, it's cheap as chips, we can hop around, there's always flights. In terms of coordination and getting from, I don't know, it's simple as the Koh Samui to Hong Kong. Can you talk okay. about the Coast, challenges? Yeah, no, Bangkok Airways had, um, was operating. It had only just been operating a couple of years, I think, or a year. So I had Bangkok Airways to Bangkok and then travel from Bangkok was easy. I mean, travel was great back then. Uh, fortunately, I was always flying business class or, and, and often got upgraded from business to first. Um, travel, was, travel was nice. They weren't the discount airlines. Mm -hmm. um, I, think, I think travel had a lot more class back then than it, there's, there's no class now. And pri price-wise was still kind of like, obviously with inflation. No, but it was, in I think it, it was expensive. Expensive. Yeah. Um, fortunately, I didn't pay, uh, yes. you know, which, is, which was great. Were um, people smoking on airplanes? When did that yes. start? Mid-90s? Oh, <clears throat> I'm a non-smoker. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, uh, first of all, everyone smoked. And then, then they moved the smokers to the back of the plane. Mm. You didn't want to have to be the person who was in the first row after. How bad smoking. was it? I can Awful. only imagine. For me, it was horrendous. It must have been just a hot box. Like. Yeah, but, but also the office I worked in um, it, at Peter Isaacson's, it was a huge newspaper office, an open plan, so everyone you know, with, with offices all around <laughs> the outside, which I had one. And I think, um, you know, we had a couple of hundred people. I think there was two of us that didn't smoke. Mm. And I used to always say, you guys are going to give me, I'm going to be the one that gets lung cancer, mm -hmm. and which we're, is we're, another story. Yeah, well, I mean, while, while we're there, do you, do you want to share some information? You were, I think. What about cancer? Yeah. What? Yeah, sure. Um, I, um, as I said, I always, I always blamed them, said I was going to get it. And uh, three years ago, I actually got uh, cancer of the tongue which is 80% uh, of people that get cancer of the tongue is from smoking. So you uh, think it was pri primarily maybe from this career? They believe, uh, the doctors believe it, but that I um, probably got it as secondhand smoking, yeah. And, and this came, but how many years after kind of years? Uh, years, years like yeah, 20, yeah. 15 years? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's, they stopped, my office, uh, Peter Isaacson was one of the first officers to stop smoking in the office. So everybody used to go outside and smoke, which was hilarious. And planes gradually started uh, stopping it. I mean, people used to sneak cigarettes on planes and it was, it was hilarious. You'd smell them and the, the hosties would be running around telling people not to do it. And then it just stopped. And now and, they're just vaping and everywhere. Then the, then the, yeah, and then the airport stopped it. And I still don't understand the vaping. It's like you're still smoking in the room. Like, where do you think that's going? I mean, I... Uh, well, Smoke your plastic stick. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, I'm from a family of smokers. Mm. Uh, I just always hated it. You know, so yeah, I just never did it. I would if I, I, if I drink beer, I will. So, and I drink every day. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I don't, I don't drink every day. Um, so back, you're, you're in Koh Samui in, mm -hmm. in let's say for, for your, your husband's sake, say the the early 90s yeah <laughs> so we don't mess yeah. up the dates yeah. um can you talk a little bit about what was samui like back then and how has it oh. changed oh samui was um it was beautiful there was nothing there were there were no made roads um 
There was the band on the hospital, which was what, quite. What do you mean? No made roads. Like you're talking dirt roads, the whole yeah, place. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> there was a little bit of bitumen around a few areas, but not much. Um, it flooded all the time, but I think Chuang still does. It, Chuang Beach was pristine. And now? It's disgusting. And I haven't been back for a few years, but it's <clears> disgusting. And they've t the vendors have taken over. There's no beach, really. I mean, it was a beautiful white sandy beach. Uh, there were no high rises. There was hardly any buildings. Uh, and there were, it was at the beginning of uh, a couple of five-star hotels. My husband, um, his, his hotel was a brand-new hotel. Which one was uh, it? It was called, it was thin, called Samui Euphoria. It's, so it's were, now in Anantara. Were the bigger hotels showing up, like your Hilton's, your Marriott's? No, 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 this is way before, way before that. that. Um, <clears throat> they were just starting to build a few hotels. And um, the first, I guess the first really well-known name would be the Centara Grand was being built. Uh, but there were a couple of other hotels that had already opened. There was a Doucet, um, and that was a, a, a really nice hotel. And then there was one other hotel. But uh, there were a lot of smaller hotels, um, all Thai-owned. Uh, there was the Tavorn Group, which was a very well-known group in those days, and they had uh, quite a few hotels along the beaches. So, I mean, there were a lot of hotels, but it was all very... Um, up and coming. There were no, uh, we couldn't get bread. And then someone opened a bakery. Uh, there was a place called Palm Burger, a very, very, very poor relative of um, what we call McDonald's these days. Uh, you couldn't, sometimes couldn't get wine. Uh, and all of a sudden someone said, wine's arrived, you know. And this is for the hotels as well. It was very primitive. Um, and it was it was a great place. Uh, people uh, would sit on the beach and um, smoke dope and all of that sort of thing. So You're coming from the kind of, I don't want to say hustle and bustle of Melbourne. I mean, Melbourne probably back then too. It's still a city. I oh, know it was hustle and bustle compared to... Com compared to, I mean, living in the jungle essentially. Oh, yeah. You were okay with that? You adapted well? Knowing that, hey, I don't have wine, I don't have bread today. No, and I kept jumping on the plane. <laughs> and and your husband maybe that's why he's like hey well he he had uh, fortunately for him every month he had to go up to Bangkok and he'd stay at the Four Seasons okay. he had a week every month and um, he would do all sales trips with the agents in Bangkok so yeah you had to get off the island I got yeah so you never had that long you know three four month stretch of get me the hell out of here you know that that can kind of go through the that no mentality. that would have been. Uh, very difficult. Uh, when when so did you see the transition where Samui started to become an actual like major destination in Thailand? Well, we were only there for two and a half years, and then we went to Malaysia and the Philippines. But it just it grew really quickly, too quickly, I think. And now it is. Uh, I went back ten years ago and went. I'm never coming back. I couldn't believe how dirty the water was in Chuang, for instance. I mean. We walked into the water up to ankle deep and you couldn't see your, your feet. And I just went, mm. uh, there's huge developments there. Everyone tells me you have to come back again. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. Um, and, and I do plan on going back 
do sometime. You, do you think that that idea, that concept, and a lot of you hear it time and time again? I, I've been in Copenhagen, and you'll meet guys that have tell you the story of the '90s of Copenhagen and yeah. the '90s of uh, Koh Samui. Is there anything in Thailand that remotely exists that you could still get that feeling? Some hidden island that maybe people aren't even aware of, or is that no, is that mindset just gone? Look, back in the, in those days, and and it was the all the party um, era, you know, back in the 90s and uh, Kopangnang was famous, but there was no accommodation over there back then. You went over and you, you literally camped if you when you went to the full moon parties. I mean, full moon parties were huge back then, but everything was super casual. Um, now, again, everywhere there's resorts and there's, you know, you've got, different levels it it's like pp island i mean i just re recently went to to pp and uh, we were lucky we, we stayed at the sai resort which is around the bend from tong sai bay and uh, on pp or rally pp okay tong, tong, sa, tong sai tong sai oh the okay the main yes, the main gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah. then we went by long tail boat around to tong sai bay yeah. And we were talking to a couple, I think they were from New Zealand. And when we arrived there, the first thing I saw was Burger King. And Tom and we got off this boat. Tom and I walked around for an hour and the boat, that was about 11 o'clock. The boat was coming back for us at four. Uh, by one o'clock, we'd hired a boat to go back. Yeah, and the next day we saw this couple... And he said to me, you caught a boat back earlier, didn't you? And I said, yes. He said, I said to my wife, will you look at her face? And apparently, as we'd pulled up at Tong Saibe, I had the look of my face was just horror mm. of Burger King, McDonald's, coffee club, banks. And it was just, get me out of here. Yeah, what what that memory you've had of it in the past it just doesn't mm. exist anymore. Yeah, and it's that's it's interesting living in eight. I've been here twelve years. You know, I find after eight years you forget. You have to actually think about it. Twelve years, and you have these amazing times at certain locations around wherever that is in Southeast Asia, and because it grows so fast here, I don't think they exist anymore when you go back. And I can say that about multiple places in the Philippines where you go back and you're like. I don't remember this being like that. I think the only one that's kind of holding true to itself right now is Rally and Tong Tongsai. Yeah. It's the only thing left that yeah. they're holding on a little bit. It's still a little, it's rustic, but you know, there's no, I hope to God that Burger King just doesn't show up there, but I don't yeah. think they can because it's quite difficult yes. to get in there. Yeah, and getting supplies and, and yeah. things. But, you know, I mean, we, we went from... Um, like I said, we were only there for two and a half years in Koh Samui. And then we went to Malaysia um, for, for you, oh, two and a half years, I think. And then Tom was offered a job in the Philippines. And uh, we went to the Philippines. Again, I'm still tracking my body around Asia and, and different places, which, which was great. You know, I was able to do all of that. And then um, we... Where did we come? We went from the Philippines. We decided... Uh, Tom had finished his job there and we went to have a look in Bali. We thought we'll base ourselves somewhere for three months, six months. We'd always uh, hated Bali. We went to Bali, uh, stayed there for a month, still hated Bali and came to Phuket. Thought, we'll have a look. 
you know, we'd been here before, both of us, not together, never together. And uh, after a month or so, we decided, yeah, we'll rent a house, and which we did. And then the next thing, he was offered a job, another job in the Philippines. And I said, well, I'm not going back there. Um, well, actually, I did. I think I lasted a week when a friend of mine was launching a magazine in uh, Bangkok. And he said to me, help, I need you. So uh, I went to Bangkok and uh, a magazine which is still well known today in Bangkok and still going, The Big Chili. The Big Chili. Mm. Mm. Which is a, um, a magazine aimed at, at expats and it's a lifestyle magazine. So, and, but did he, sorry, he went back to the Philippines? Yeah. And so you're, now, did you have a home in Phuket and you're kind of based yeah. out running around a little yeah. bit? Yeah, so I would go to the Philippines and then he'd come back to. Yeah, the Philippines, I don't, yeah. I, I've been everywhere there. I, I think I might be done with it, to be honest. Yeah. It's nice. It's just so, I feel, it's just too difficult to get around when you want to really go somewhere. Yeah. And then once you get there, you don't want to be there that long either. Because then you're bored in about two days. I mean, it wasn't a place that ever ever grabbed me. No. I had some very good friends. And the and food is kind of oh, I don't, mm, it's just yeah. me. It's just like, do you want more rice with your pork or more pork with your rice? Pick. Yeah. I, I don't know. The food's okay. It's uh, nothing yeah. against Filipino food. I mean, yeah, well, but it's just it's very just barbecue. Yeah, it's very I, heavy. I've, they make uh, lechon kawali, which is the crispy pork. That's yeah, yeah that's good. It's yeah, it's good there, but it's uh, after a week. It's yeah. then you you know how it is when you're in those places, and then you know a, a pasta, you know any whatever country you're in, they no. want to get. Oh, it's terrible. But I think when I used to travel around Asia, and I mean, oh, everyone would it was always it was always Asian food, and people would want me to try this and try that. All I wanted was a sandwich. Yeah, you know, you you want your own. It's, it's like people come on holidays here, and Yes, we want Thai food. After a couple of days of Thai food, they've had enough Thai food and they want uh, Western food or if they're Indians, they want Indian food or different nationalities. Yeah, they want their own cuisine. And you feel bloated, I find. Yeah. I mean, you're eating, if you're eating outdoor Thai food all day. Mm. We cook Thai food here, but it's clean and it's yeah. okay. Um, and I think that's a great transition segue into working at Ben Rinpa. Um We yeah. were talking about that off the air before and we both kind of agreed that no thai food is not healthy i mean they're jumping dropping sugar and msg and palm oils um goldie was on the podcast and he explained have you tried ban rim pa and that's just a coincidence i just kind of found out oh you you're you're the executive director i'm the executive manager and marketing director can you explain why is ban rim pa why are they on another level than your average street food and you got to pay for quality so people can really understand and they stop going in and thinking they paid double the price for a pad thai. There's a reason for that. Mm. Okay, so uh, I'll just sort of run back to how I became involved with it. Uh, as I said, I've always been in magazines and, and everything and uh, I was in Bangkok. Tom finished his contract in the Philippines and came back to Phuket and we decided, okay, let's retire. Mm. Uh, so he then actually was offered another job a little bit later, but I came back and within five minutes, um, I was asked by a friend of mine, uh, who's, who's a guy, Bruce Stanley, who's a journalist who lives in Phuket. He said, Tom McNamara from Barn Rampar. Now, Barn Rampar had already been going for 12 years uh, when I started. And uh, he said, he needs someone to sort out his advertising and his marketing. 
So I said, well, I'm on the other side of the fence. I sell advertising. And, and he said, no, no, he said, you, you, you'd be perfect. So I went and met this Tom McNamara, who I did know. And um, I will say, um, God rest his soul, um, he passed away 13, 14 years ago. But he was a, a loudmouth American. And, um, but he had started, and, and people who know, and there's people around who still who know or knew Tom, and he was. He was a bit of a heavy drinker and very aggressive. And I went and he said, I need you to come and do this. And I said, Tom, you and I won't get on. I said, I don't think I can work for you. And he said, well, look, just have a look at this. And in, so I went over all of his advertising and his percentages and went, you advertise on everything and in everything and you pay full price for everything. This is not how you do it. He said, I know, but anyone comes in to sell me advertising, I say, okay. I said, yeah, you're the sort of person I love to sell to. So I, I agreed in the end that I'd work for him for three months. I must be very bad at my job because I've been there over 21 years, so I still haven't got the job right. I'm still working on it. Or you love it. Well, my job changed a lot and I, I work very closely. I mean, Tom, Tom passed away, as I said. I've, I've always helped with um, a lot of the family business that he had and things and just got involved with different things and he... Uh, he had cancer. He had cancer when I first started there, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, he passed away um, about fourteen years ago. But he he started. He came to uh, to Thailand to. He'd had restaurants in other parts of the world, in uh, the UK, the West Indies, the Bahamas, and he was a bit of a nomad and you know an interesting character, interesting history, um, and he. Uh, rented the house where the original Barna and Pa was and started having dinner parties and uh, people said to him why don't you open a restaurant uh, Tom had stayed at the bank at the Oriental in Bangkok for three months three months or six months I think before and he'd become very good friends with the general manager and he managed to convince the general manager to loan him his head Thai chef to come down for three months and then to coordinate for another three months, I believe. And he came down and taught the staff Royal Thai Cuisine. Now, you can't use the title Royal Thai Cuisine unless the recipes or a good percentage come from the royal family. And this chef grew up with the royal family in Bangkok. His parents were actually chefs to the royal family. So he came down, taught Tom's chefs, and Tom started a small restaurant, which then grew to, to 200 seats. Um, and this was the original Bamroong Pa in Patong, and now it's kind of moved up to Kali. Moved up the road. We built a new one up the road, uh, which opened about seven years ago. Um, however, and we operated the two of them until just before COVID. The original one, um, the, the buildings and land wasn't owned by, uh, by our our owners. So how, how close is the menu, kind of the original menu, to what it is today? Uh, a lot of it is still the same. Um, obviously, things have changed, uh, as in we haven't used MSG for years. We haven't used um, palm oil. Uh, it's because of the mix of cultures and things that we have. Uh, 
we're very careful with um, we don't do halal food, but we we have a lot of because uh, some of our staff obviously we have staff that are Muslim, staff that are Buddhist. All of our staff are Thai, and I'll make it clear: I work there. I, I don't own the restaurant. I am the only foreigner or Farang that works there. Um, but it's very important to us that we can look after different uh, different requirement requirements. Uh, the freshness of our food is very important. Washing the food is is with clean water and all of those things is very important to us. Uh, our location is is a very expensive location. The building just to keep it all operational is very expensive, and all of those things come into the pricing plus the training and 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 everything. But um, our our food is known as Royal Thai cuisine. However, we have also um, local dishes from southern Thailand and we have different local specialities and, uh, like chomawang, which is uh, Thai, Thai dumpling, but it's this little purple dump, dumpling that uh, has minced chicken and crab inside. Is and it like a dumpling or dim sum? It's a Thai, no, you can't even explain it. I'd have to show you a mm. picture of it. It's, it's beautiful. Um, uh, go to our website, com and you'll see pictures of, of some of the food because it, uh, it it's really quite special. The presentation is very important to us. And so you've been working there. That's kind of, that's been your main job ever since you've really relocated permanently yeah. into Phuket. And I'm still there, still there now, as I said, you know. I'm, and let, let's, we were talking about now your your charities and um, connecting that to Banring Park. Can you explain how that first came together? Sure. Um, we always supported the local school. Banring Park always supported the local uh, Kalim school, which was a thatched roof school and very poor. What is thatched roof? You know, like grass roof. Oh. Yeah, okay. just little. And uh, the school is still there today, but it, it's a bit different since the tsunami because we, we used to give food to them and we used to give them um, lots of different things. But the tsunami hit, which affected, this is the Asian tsunami, affected all of that area, including our restaurants. Uh, we had uh, also had a, a Japanese restaurant and an Italian restaurant next door to Ban Rinpoche, and they were wiped out. The school was wiped out. So after um, the tsunami, a lot of money came in and the school was rebuilt. Beautiful buildings, much nicer than before. Money came from overseas and from the government. But the one thing um, we found out was that there was no English being taught, even though English is supposed to be taught in, in all schools. So my boss, Tom McNamara, said, let's put a charity together and hit the business people uh, in Phuket who have made money in Phuket, who it's been good to them. So he called it Phuket has been good to us, hoping that he could get his friends to, to donate money, which they did. And then we realised these things actually take a lot more than that, So and, and it started to grow. So we did the Kalim School and um, we set up a program there to teach uh, and they're all primary students there. And then uh, that was uh, 2006. Then we were asked by the huge school in Kamala. They came and said, we want you to do it in our school. That's the, the big one right on the beach, right? Mm. Mm. 
And we said, because again, they had been totally destroyed. There was the, the day of the tsunami, in fact, the day after the tsunami, they, they'd had a, a kindergarten school ready to open, but was opening the day after, fortunately. And that school, that school was wiped. Yeah, we out had, um, I had John on from the owner of, founder of Soy Dog. And he kind of told that story as well. And apparently there's a story about an elephant that saved a Swedish girl. Oh yeah, that's a true story. Yes, and and it's, it's I don't, I'm not saying it's funny, but I'm saying there's so many people that I've heard other podcasts and no one believes this. No, they it, don't believe that true. actually happened. There was also a, a, an elephant um, uh, at the Meridian that saved a, a little boy. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of really interesting stories and... Um, I'm a very I'm very cynical, but I was here when the tsunami happened, and I saw lots of things and heard lots of things afterwards that um, I would normally <clears throat> never never believe. Unless you saw it, never believe. They said the animals just knew, and they all went in. All the dogs, uh, the soy dogs from down on the beaches, they'd all left the because we thought afterwards, oh, all the dogs are going to have drowned and everything. They'd all gone. They're all, they had all head, headed for the hills, even though they're very territorial. They knew something was wrong. It's strange how they know. It's, and uh, it's, it's not, it's whatever sixth sense they have. I mean, we do not. No. no, no. Yeah. But I mean, uh, again, you know, I could go on with lots of stories. Yeah, about I had that, a, a lady yeah. on, uh, her name's Pim. She is the managing director, family owns PP Princess in, in, uh, on PP Island. Mm -hmm. She was on and we did kind of a whole podcast. A lot was about that, the tsunami and uh, what happened during that time, especially at PP. And she was explaining to me that the local PP Island people, like talking like the boat people there, they're not even really. Sea you, gypsy. Sea gypsies. She says they have songs in their language, which is kind of like Malay. That's correct. About the tsunami, meaning the tsunami has probably hit this area who knows how many times in 500,000 well, years. Um, it hit it did hit about 100 years ago, we right. know that. And yes, um, the sea gypsies have stories about it. And the sea gypsies, when, when it first hit, the first wave hit, they headed up, uh, like I live in Rawai, so we have the sea gypsy village. They headed up the hills. And even after it was over, they stayed up there for about two weeks. People used to take food and drop food and water off because they wouldn't go back down. They knew all about tsunami from their readings and their songs and their stories. Which is just passed on from, you know, yes. a couple, maybe just a couple generations. Yeah, well, yeah. but it's probably, it's probably long generations, you know, we it's don't interesting. know. interesting. Yeah. And back then that's kind of the, the brink of technology where it, it was just starting to come into play, but we still didn't really have that. Well, you know, um, on the day the tsunami hit, we were at, I was at my house with a, a girlfriend of mine who usually comes over every year. And I remember how bright the sun was because I'd actually closed the shears, the curtains, and I never closed the curtains. And I no longer have curtains there. But the, the sky was so blue. And all of a sudden she said to me, what's that noise? And we went out and there were waves on my swimming pool. And I remember her saying, oh, um, Tom can use the boogie board I bought him for. And yeah, we were just, that was the earthquake, but we didn't realize the next thing, um, my husband was GM of a, a villa res resort in um, Carter and he had to go over there and 
he's one of these guys who always watches National Geographic, knows he, he, lots of things, and he saw the second wave and he knew it was a tsunami. And he rang, and at that stage, phones were going off everywhere, and so we sort of knew all about you it. You were kind of in Rawai at that time? Uh, yeah. But that did, area, did it get hit hard? Oh, yes, yeah. Um, it, it was a low wave that came in. Okay. And uh, my house is sort of the Rawai beaches here, and then you come along the main road, and then it goes up a bit and goes down. My house is up here, fortunately, overlooking the water. Anyone at the, on the same area but down low, like uh, Friendship Beach and mm-hmm. all of that, it all came through there. Was and and Rawai, all of the boats came up onto the road. And Okay, there's more just the, the destruction. Yeah. But people, were they, was it okay there or is it just more destruction in that area? Um, well, there was a, a good friend of ours. She, she died in Yanui. Really? Yeah, she, they had a house there and... Um, her maid had called her and said, there's water in the house. She wasn't living in the house at the time. So she went down to check what was um, wrong at the house mm. and she got caught in the second wave. Yeah, because I don't think, there there probably haven't been many tsunamis worldwide in the past 50 years anyways. Japan, Japan, Japan? has, they have them all the time. Mm. Indonesia as well, Indonesia? I think. Yeah. Indonesia, yeah. Yeah. Yes. they have more than, I think, 200 <clears throat> per year. Yeah. Like yeah. Something. And Japan um, and, and Indonesia. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And of course, the Asian tsunami started in in Indonesia. Yeah, this was from um, the Sumatra Islands, yes, right? Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of so. came out here. Yeah, and it just built up, but more and more as it as it uh, and the same as when it hit Phuket, as it went around the coast, the pressure built up more and more, and that's mm-hmm. why as it went north and then up to Kaulak, uh, when it came in. The power was so strong, and it's flat lying area. So then, anyway, we should move on from well, that. Well, I think we were we were, so we'll we're connecting that with uh, the Camelos School. Okay. So the so Camelos School reached out to you, and then specifically, yeah, what happened and, from there? Um, so, it, <clears throat> for us to uh, to do that, we had to make, raise more money. So we started doing fundraisers and uh, raising more money because what we have to do is we have to have our teachers must be fluent in English. We don't have Thai teachers. Well, we do now. We have a couple of Thai teachers. Uh, but we usually have teachers who need work permits, visas, um, and then they, have a, they get paid a salary, which is not like salaries in international schools, I can assure you. Um, and we have to cover all of the costs for everything, for teaching aids, everything. We teach English for free. The only thing that the school provides us is the space. And um, our teachings are part of the curriculum. In the first year or two, it was just we were teaching English. But then it became, it was obvious how good it was. So uh, we're part of the, we have the CES program and uh, we're now teaching not just English, we're teaching uh, science and mathematics in English as well. And um, we have... um, one, two, three, four. We have five teachers currently. We had seven, but we had to cut back financially. You know, time set but us. When did that start at the Camilla School? Oh, um, only about two years after we started. So, so about 2008, 2008 yeah, or so. nine, yeah. And that's it's a massive school. It as is well. a massive school. And they, when we started there, we were unaware of the fact that the school had a dormitory where a lot of the children that lived there mm-hmm. were. Uh, victims of the tsunami that they either d- 
didn't have parents, they were orphans, or their parents couldn't take care of them. Uh, at the time, there was about 120 or so children. Now, you would think over the years, those children have grown up and so there's no... We're, that school now has more than 200 children living in that dormitory. Just And how many kids are going to that school? So about 700. Wow. But uh, these kids, it, it's still happening all the time here, that there are a lot of orphans, um, there are a lot of parents who can't take care of their children or maybe they're from the provinces, from poorer families in the provinces and things. So yeah, I, know, I know there's a charity up by the Lock Palm Golf Course and they're kind of like, it's for orth orphans, but mostly from the Patong area because maybe their mother is this or their father is smoking that or whatever. But they, are you involved with that one as well? Uh, I forget the name of it. Um, where is it? It's basically if you're uh, at the Lock Palm Golf Course, and you're taking the back road to the British International That's School. It's not Sunshine Village, is it? Maybe. Uh, I'm not maybe. sure. No, we sort of all uh, try and help each other yeah. with different things. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it just takes a lot of time, we, and we struggle a lot, and we have to raise funds all the time. I mean, people sort of go, oh, you must be a rich charity now. You, you make so much money from these events. Mm. The money comes in... the the front door and goes out the back door so fast. And we have to plan a year ahead because we have to plan for our teachers and the, uh, the programs for, uh, for the students and the whole things. And yeah, we're people, definitely not a rich, rich charity. I mean, people don't, they need to understand what charities, I mean, like you said, you have to hire teachers. The money has to go somewhere. How does this thing run as well? Mm. Um, I'm certain people, they can't do it for free as well. They need to survive. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have a, a director <clears throat> of operations who's been with us now for about 12 years, Tina. Uh, she is amazing. Um, yeah, I'm the uh, uh, chairman of the board of managers and, and that means nothing. Uh, but some, you know, often people say to me, oh, so, so what salary do you get? And I go, I haven't made one satang in, in the all the years. That's not what it's about. You know, if you... If you if you do these things, you do it because you want to do it. Uh, yes, Tina earns a salary. She earns a salary because this is her job and she, she works seven days a week. She's on holidays at last in the UK to see her mother. Yet I'm on Facebook with her you know, every day doing things. She's, she's amazing. We have a wonderful head teacher, Jerlyn, who is, is, is just um, super and, and, and our teachers uh, – we're great. We have two. Uh, we have a Thai teacher now who came from the Princess Songkhla University, um, and we have another one who's doing trainee as well. Uh, Me mentally, I'm assuming it must take a toll as well. I mean, you see the positive side when the greatness comes up, but obviously, getting involved, you you see maybe where they're starting from, and that can kind of hit home. Um, how? Anyone working, especially in charity work, it's. I'm assuming it's it's much different than charity work back home. But in these places where, you know, there is poverty, these people are coming from difficult upbringings, um, how do you kind of not take that home with you? Uh, I, well, you do. I mean, it's, not, it's uh, not so difficult for me because I'm not there day in, day out. I mean, our teachers who are there and they see some of these children and, and some of the very sad cases um, uh, I've seen children who are from mixed relations here. So 
um, the father has been of European and the mother's Thai and the child's uh, been growing up and he's actually been going to international school and then mother and father split up and father goes back to his own country and leaves the child with the mother and not financially supported and then the child's gone from going to one of the international schools and all of a sudden he has ended up uh, in our school which is um, a very it's low end school compared to what he's been used to and it's devastating to see these these children and what they go through mentally it's it's really hard and they're too know. young to even understand it yeah and and when, but some of them aren't too young. Some of them we're talking kids who might be like ten or something. When they they know exactly what's going on, so it's it's hard. Um, I mean, we do, we did for the kids who uh, are at the school permanently. We do an after school and weekend program called Coconut Club, and we've done this for many many years. And we do birthday parties every three months. And kids who have had their birthday, they get to have a party. We always done it at different hotels different hotels have sponsored them for us unfortunately because of what's just happened in the last couple of years uh, we haven't been able to do it uh, but we've started again but we've been doing them at the school until things you know get back to totally normal primarily um, where, where is the the money coming from meaning like if people are watching this podcast, how could they uh, donate? And even on your side, when you're doing that, that, that let's say marketing to for the donations, how does that work? Okay, so um, there's lots of different ways. Yes, you can just give money. You can make a donation, um, which is which is very easy. You can go to our website, which is PhuketHasBeenGoodToUs.org. Um, you can sponsor a child for a year. And uh, that's, it's, it's actually very reasonable. It's 10,000 baht. And you get information from the teacher a couple of times a year about the child and what the child's doing, uh, how they're doing with their grades and things. Uh, we, we always want to sponsor more children. You, if you're wanting to make a larger donation, you can sponsor a teacher uh, because we need our teachers sponsored, but it's not something... Um, that happens very often. We've had different companies, um, major sponsor over the years who have every year give us donations. Uh, some of those companies have been hit because of the, the recent uh, events. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, they're not supporting us now. Uh, we have some people who have been with us for many years who just regularly give us donations because they've seen what we've done and because uh, we are very open with all of our uh, expenses and things, uh, if people want to know where the money goes, we we show them that our administration costs are as low as they possibly can be, mm -hmm. because uh, uh, and we're very very transparent about the whole thing. And what about if people want to donate their own time? Is that possible? Like if they can do if they have weekend time, or does, does it work like no, this in any way? No, you can't do that because um, one. It's confusing for the children uh, if people are coming in because we are teaching. It's like any school, we're teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, we don't allow visitors to come into the class. Otherwise it disrupts the class or very rarely do we unless they're, unless they're major donors. Then we might, you know, sort of 
There we go. A, a million baht, you can come in the yeah, class. You can come in, please, <laughs> please. Um, and have but, a lesson. Watch yeah, a lesson. There you go. Yeah. One, only one million. That's it. There yeah, you go. Yeah. Uh, we can allow them, we hope to be allowed them soon to come into Coconut Club again. Again, we're still very careful with different things, you know, with the kids. We just have to be, we have to be very protective as well. Mm. Um, because of, uh, there was a history back after the tsunami of a lot of bad things happening with children. And that's why the Thai government have made it very strict on uh, volunteer visas and things like that. Yeah, people can take advantage of them and, and whatnot. This, now Phuket has been good to us. We've touched on the two schools that you've been involved with both initially starting in Kaleem and now in Kamala as well. Are there other charities that branch out of this? Because we can, we will jump into uh, Living Waters Phuket, mm -hmm. but is there anything else specific that people should understand or know about at Phuket has been good to us? Um, I just think it's, it's very important to know that <clears throat> even though Phuket looks as though it's quite a wealthy place, and yes, there are a lot of, uh, of wealthy ties and things, there are a lot of very poor areas still in um in Phuket and a lot of people who struggle and that's why we, you know, as I said, we have 200 children uh, or more than 200 in the dormitory. Uh, we need support. These children do need to have English language to be able to advance in their future. If it wasn't for our programs, which have proven to work, uh, we've got some of the highest numbers in our CES programs. So we need to continue and to, to continue we, we need money. Mm -hmm. If you are coming on holidays and you want to bring things over, uh, often people bring over things, please contact the uh, contact Tina, which you can get her address at the um, on the website, and she will tell you items that would be great to bring over. <clears throat> you know, these can be things like notepads, pens, pencils. Uh, yeah, don't bring candy. Eat, uh, don't bring candy. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but just different things that are great because also we have a uh, uh, computer lab, uh, which we'll talk about with, five, uh, with um, Living yep. Waters. But uh, we have competitions for the kids and we do, we give them simple gifts, birthday presents. Uh, these children don't have the, the gifts that our kids would normally get in these birthday parties like that. Mm. And when we have a birthday party, it's for a whole group of children. They're allowed to bring one friend and they do get a small gift that somebody's donated. Uh, we've had things like uh, shampoos and hair conditioners and toothbrushes and things that have been collected from hotels. Mm. So simple things. Foot, bring them a football. They'll probably love it. There yeah. You go. Oh, yeah. sports equipment anytime. Bring sports equipment. Yeah. Um, bring uh, shorts, boys' shorts. Please bring nice, clean clothing and things hey, could people that are living on the island um are they able to bring stuff to donate or would they kind of go through the website and coordinate from there yeah a lot of people here do they contact us and uh, often on facebook they'll ask us and yeah i mean we we need things all the time it's an ongoing thing because the kids I'm, are growing I'm all meaning the time more just like don't go to decathlon fill up a truck and just show up at the school and then drop it like no. at least court, let's do no, some no, coordination. No. It, it has to go to our charity yeah. office and then we, we organize things. But the best thing, like I said, is contact us. Say, hey, listen, um, uh, we've got such a touch. We've got some computers. Now, we don't, 
we can't have things and often it's happened to us where someone comes on and says, look, I've got this computer. It just needs to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, we have no money to fix things. We don't have the funds to repair things. We don't want the old junk. Make sure and Windows is installed. Yes. It's ready to go and they can yeah, turn it say, on. And it's clean. Don't and show it's up wearing. with a power supply and a screen and say, and if you just tweak this and. <laughs> yeah, uh, you wouldn't believe yeah, how many have, have done that. Uh, clothing, it must be clean and, and simple clothing, you know, shorts. No underwear. Uh, no, we don't want underwear and we don't want bikinis. Um, yeah. <laughs> But, um, and, yeah. and also probably keep in mind that I would assume the majority of the students are probably Muslim as well, because Kamala in this uh, area. Yes, a lot, a lot, yeah. a lot of Muslims. So, yeah, yeah, we have to be careful with all of that. Uh, and we, we also teach um, now at the kindergarten in uh, Kamala. The, the sunshine? Or what's no, it called? Rising uh, Star? Yeah. Uh, it's it's a government run. Oh, government. Okay, no, no I was the, thinking oh, no, of Rising Star. No, no, it's the government run, <clears throat> and they came to us and said, we want an English teacher. And we said, um, we don't have, we can't support it because it's, you know, you're funding this and it's, they said, we will pay for a teacher. So they're actually paying for us to put a teacher in because they've watched the program in the school and, um, you know, it's... Which is great. So now because you have these one children, there. yeah, mm. yeah, we have a full time teacher there, and these children will go into the school, and they'll always already have some knowledge of English when they start school. Which yeah, is and great. especially at that, you got to get them young as well. Mm, yeah. the, the most difficult challenge, I would assume, it's I mean, uh, it's yes, you can have English teachers in English class. The problem is the second you leave the class, you go back to your native tongue, and it's very hard to continue in a second language. I'm saying that more from a, uh, it's true. a, a perspective. I've lived in China, picking this up. But no. when you leave those environments, it's really hard to keep using it. And not every child cares. Not every child wants to learn English. It's like anything. Some will come in the front door and out the back door exactly the same. But where we saw something that was, was fantastic, um, during the lockdown periods and everything here, we thought our teachers were going to try and teach online and we didn't think it would work we were amazed our teachers actually the, our best area for our wi-fi was up on the roof of our office so the teachers went up there and set up computers a lot of our students don't have computers at home so we got telephones mm -hmm. donated and we went round in the mornings, would drop them off, and there would be sometimes five children on one telephone doing a class. We had 70% of our children doing online learning. Sue, sorry, do you have some kind of psychological uh, uh, support for these kids as well? We don't, no. No, not through our charity. Mm. Um, our... our goal is to teach English to um, underprivileged children who wouldn't have the opportunity. Mm. And then on that side, I'm assuming, then they also have their Thai teachers that kind of help them out. For, oh, yes. Because this is a government yeah. school at the end of the day. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay, I want to jump into living. How, how, how long have we been recording? 120. 120, oh, okay. Oh, we Broke. keep talking. Yeah, it keeps going. It's okay. This is, that's why it's good about a podcast. It just keeps, keeps rolling. 
It's rolling, baby. Okay. When the conversation is amazing, <laughs> it goes, you don't even realize. Amazing. It goes fast. Sometimes yeah. they can go two hours. Uh, we'll, try to, we'll try to wrap it up in about 10, 15. The main reason is what we tried to do, we found is we, need to, we actually need to keep it under an hour and 19 minutes. This is the YouTube algorithm. So we'll try to keep it under another 15. The second you get too high, YouTube won't push it. Okay, stop, stop talking. Uh, you know what? It's all me. Just leave a comment if I'll just, uh, we could just delete all my scenes. Hans, you got some editing to do. Um, let, let's move forward and then connect now with Living Waters Phuket and how you guys are all involved in working with Sean. So first, thanks to Sean Stenning at Five Star Marine. I, you probably saw an ad before that was cut in. Um, and Five Star Marine, there again, they're a private uh, boat, private VIP uh, boat tour company on the island of Phuket. So big thanks to Sean Stenning, and they're supporting this podcast. Um, again, we for his support, I did it in a way. It's like just help us get the overhead going, um, so I can focus on some other stuff as well to be able to grow this. So big shout out to Five Star, big shout out to Sean Stenning, and he's been on twice now. Can you go through that connection with Living Waters Phuket and how that came together? Uh, well, sh- yeah, sure. Um, I haven't known Sean all that long, really. Uh, when um, in recent times, when there were people who weren't didn't have food, and uh, a, a group of people got together, uh, Andrea uh, Edwards put it together called One Phuket. Yes. Ma'am. And uh, we're looking at trying to help people. How are we going to do it? How are we going to help people? Let's let's make food bags. And then she, she already found out that there was this guy, Sean Stenning, from Five Star Marine, who was doing life bags. And he was already involved. He had it all set up and was doing a great job. So he came to this meeting and I, Andrea had asked me to be um, on part of this one Phuket because of my history. And I said, sure, let's get together, see what we can do. And that is how I originally met Sean. Um, we worked closely together with, with a lot of the um, involvement with getting life bags together. During that, that, during t- that time. time. Yeah. And, and uh, I think a, a very special shout out to Nando as well, because they oh, did yeah. it all over at Sutai. That's and right. Nando was our first guest ever on, this, on the show. Well, yeah. So Nando was a huge part of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I didn't know Nando either. And then uh, when Sean decided <clears throat> to start Living Waters Phuket, he asked Nando and he asked myself to uh, be on a board with, with him to, uh, to help him make decisions. Uh, because one, I've, I've been in Phuket a long time, a lot longer than any of them. So I, I know a lot of history about people here, different uh, organisations and things uh, more than Sean did. And he, he wanted my knowledge uh, on those things. Uh, Nando is just such a super guy. So we made a, make a great team. Uh, and we also have uh, a wonderful other couple of people, Peter and Nina, who just uh, just super people. And we that got together and, uh, and that's uh, how and we... I know it's, there wasn't a website. There wasn't a foundation yeah. at that level. Yeah. They just had, you had to get stuff done. Yeah. And that's, I, I mean, cause I'm living here. So I saw it every day mm. of what was going on down there. Um, I was locked out though. At that time when they were doing that there, I was stuck. I got stuck in another district. <laughs> um, the one by blue tree. So I couldn't even get back home. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't, well, it's a funny story. I didn't get back. Home. I was staying at a ex-girlfriend's house 
And they're like, well, you better get back home. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll go tomorrow. And then one day I went to go back. The gate was closed. I couldn't get in. I couldn't, I couldn't pass one of the roadblocks. Anyways, so that came together. They were doing the life bags. Chris Parker came in. Yes. He was on the podcast as well. Yeah. He did a big part to hello. And Chris does great stuff pay yeah, it, on does, his pay it yeah. forward. Um, so shout out to Retired Working For You, Chris Parker and Adam Parker as well. They are doing awesome work, especially yeah. on the island of Koh Samui. Um, I think go check out his YouTube channel, uh, Retired Working For You. He's got tons of subscribers doing great stuff. Now, at which point did this uh, charity become kind of official to what it is, Living Waters Phuket, and the extra stuff now that they are doing? Okay. Um, it was all very fast. I mean, literally, Sean, Sean was doing all of these things himself through Five Star Marine, and then he decided to, to start um, Living Waters Phuket and asked us to come on board. And what we do is uh, we assess different projects, so people, different charities who uh, might need something, for instance, Phuket has been good to us. Uh, Sean, uh, well, Living Waters has supported uh, uh, with a fabulous uh, computer lab. Uh, there was a, a, a group of people who had money who wanted to invest in a project. They saw this project was viable it was all checked out and they donated uh, 12 fabulous laptops and now we have computer classes at the school for a certain number of our um our uh, students mm -hmm. which is is amazing to watch and see the the classes that have been put together i mean it's well i was checking a lot of there's a lot of other charities as well like i saw they were involved um with uh, like sewing and teaching people okay. to sew right uh, Seeds of Change is just a Correct. recent, yeah. uh, uh, and I've, I've been involved quite heavily with that. Uh, Seeds of me, sorry, I'll in interrupt quick. That's what Mika introduced me. She said, hey, uh, you should check out Seed to Change. So are you primarily involved with that as well? <laughs> I'm involved. Uh, I okay. have been quite involved with it. And how the involvement for me was, uh, uh, I know the people who, the, the ladies who have just, been doing this for many years actually but they've just started to grow they make all of these wonderful um elephants uh, of all different sizes little tiny ones medium-sized ones big ones and they started to sell them and start to put them in shops and then they started making bags and baskets and different products and what they're doing is they're teaching Maybe what happens is ladies who maybe have a job, they get pregnant, they lose their job because they can't work and look after a child. A lot of Burmese workers as well. Yeah, but a lot of Thai workers. Mm. And um, so we, we don't. Uh, they teach, Sam and her group teach these ladies how to sew. And it's a three-month course. I think it's three months. And then after that, they have the opportunity of either – They've learned a, a trade. They can go and start their own business or they can now be employed by Seeds of Change to make more product because we're now trying to get more hotels and more places, mm -hmm. outlets for these products to be sold. And they are beautiful, high-quality, sustainable products. Mm -hmm. All of the materials are donated. For instance, I've just donated a whole lot of my silk um, curtains that 
the silk curtains needed to be replaced, but the material's been fine to, to use for different patchwork um, things. Mm-hmm. Tim Newton donated all of his shirts, all those bright-coloured shirts. Beautiful. And there's now a big elephant, and that we hope to be auctioning that off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the product is superb, and it, what it's doing is teaching these ladies. Now, they've just had one room to work out of, so it's never grown. They needed a better venue. And this is where Living Waters came in, and Sean came to me and he said, we have found this location, and uh, it was the lo- uh, location of Life Home Project. But Life Home Project had changed their direction and were moving out of it. It's a very big, uh, huge area. It has lots of different buildings, including accommodation buildings. And uh, Sean asked me if I knew anybody, and I, I said, yes, I know everybody on the board. And so I put a proposal together and put a proposal to the board, along with the proposal from uh, Sam um, from Seeds of Change, and really hit them and that we wanted this place for three years for virtually nothing mm-hmm. um, because this is a charity and another charity and they've come um, life the the board of life home project came to the party and gave us a, a very very good deal and we got in we got a working bee together we had kids from the different head starting from British school come in and help clean. Uh, we had lots of local people. We just did this working bee over a weekend and people came in and painted and cleaned and sandwashed and did everything. And now it's all up and running and it's now I- expanding. And when they're, they're selling these, are the, the, it's going back into the charity or how does the that The money work? comes in mm-hmm. and goes back in. Obviously has to pay for the rent yeah, yeah. now, but goes back in and to, buy, to make more product and mm-hmm. to pay... If we, if we have these ladies who have already learnt but they want to stay and work, then, then get paid a salary. Mm-hmm. So everything goes back into it. It's just a, And the more we can do this, the bigger we can grow. Um, different hotels, like there's a Novotel down in Carter that has given us a shop. I say us, I shouldn't. Seeds of change, a shop. Uh, there's now uh, the Banyan Tree sells them and it's their best-selling product these are beautiful and there's obviously the story behind it when you arrive and see what you're purchasing and and you can understand you know people are always looking for locally uh, made products to take home Mm -hmm. and they get sick of a lot of the rubbish that is around and i mean a lot of it is is rubbish these are beautiful i'm sorry if you go uh, people yeah if you go to any um tourist shop Mm. none of that's even from here no it's all from well, China. a lot of it isn't. There, there are yeah. no, there are things that are handmade, and and there's some great products. There's some products that can't be transported back to certain countries. Australia is very strict, whereas everything that is made with these um, with from seeds of change can be transported to other countries. Mm-hmm. And these elephants are just wonderful presents. Uh, everything from a little key ring that. Everybody loves to have it. Doesn't they're not an they're not for kids. They're not for an age. Uh, when the governor and his wife came and opened the project, um, Sam gave them two specially made elephants, mm. uh, and they were delighted. 
how are you able to balance this all? So many hats. I mean, this is a, you, you must be I, a, I don't. I don't do that much. Okay. It's, it's the other people that do all the work. They do all the hands-on work. Um, I, look, uh, I try and do what I can to to help in as, as many ways as possible because I think these things are really worthwhile. Um, but it's it's people like Sam and Tina uh, who are the, who are the hands-on people. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm just their advisor. Somebody needs me yeah. to to do things. You what know. what else is under this um, umbrella? Because I know now you guys when Phuket had the floods. That's why I brought Sean on to discuss that. I mean. Um, pretty much anything and everything in Phuket where you guys can assist and help out, you can. Is there anything else that people could be aware of? And, and well, I think, you know, with, with Living Waters, uh, we, we look at projects all the time and then we try and get financial support to, to, um, to help those projects. One of the projects that we did uh, not that long ago was putting um, the, um, sun, uh, the sunroofs, the uh, like solar panels? Solar panels, yeah, thank you. you. Solar panels on the roof Teamwork of a here. school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, on the, the roof of one of the schools. Mm. We look for projects, but we, we have to, you know, raise the money. We have to make people aware and try and get money in for, for life home projects, mm. uh, for uh, living waters to try yeah. and yeah. do more projects. A lot of the projects we do, uh, we want uh, the organisations themselves to put in 50% and we'll put in 50% to give them the goal to try and raise some of the money. However, some of them can't do that. So we, we analyze what we think is. And you're also, if, if any, let's say a potential charity, someone has an idea, okay, I want to start a charity for maybe um, orphans and, and to give them a place to live. And besides the school side, um, and maybe they're just or abandoned children, which there are a lot. You all, mm. you can see them around the different areas of Phuket. And if they had this concept to start their own charity and they would be involved and manage it, would they come to you guys and, and ask for help and an assistant in, in regards to the we, we, consultation? If they came and just wanted to have a chat. Okay. But we would not um, support. It, it would be too much work because... Uh, there's been too many charities uh, over the uh, the years and, and recent years that have come and gone and have actually um, come and made money, done and, and run off with money and done lots Did, of that. Have you there's seen a, that a lot in Thailand? Yes. Where people come in yes. and they... A lot. A lot. And that's why you have to be very careful. If you are going to donate, that's the same anywhere. Uh, do, you see, do you see those, like... When you see them come in, is it a red flag or do they kind of put on that so oh. sociopathic face we and they're have, able to trick you and no, pull I've the No, I've seen wool? some amazing, very astute business people over the years come in and uh, um, set up charities and you would think that they were legitimate really legitimate and then they've run off with the money and, and they can and pull things. the wool yeah. right over your eyes uh, you, you have to i mean look at charity if you're going to um give money to charities always do the be aware do the research yeah. yeah and make sure that they are legitimate legitimate and that they have been around for for a time to set up a new charity is not easy it's well, very to difficult get approved in, in thailand very difficult yeah and I mean, Phuket has been good to us. Is an official, registered charity. 
Mm. And it's now been going since 2006. Yeah, because um, these people can come in and just start a charity and put a little link on WeBoom and grab your money. Yeah. WeBoom's a bit, I, I get it, but it's a bit, you got to be careful what you're donating. It's almost just like crowdsourcing. You're just getting crowdfunding. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts on some of these? Uh, we won't, we'll, we'll wrap it up in five minutes. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on some of these elephant? I have my opinions on these elephant parks that come in and say they're charities. There must be a lot of bullshit ones out there. Ooh. I don't even know. Is elephants no. on the list of like things we can't talk about either? Like those um, elephant parks? Look, there's, uh, there's good ones and the, there's bad ones. One, I don't believe in, as most people, in riding elephants anymore. You know, we've, we've gone through all of these different stages over the years. Yes, I, uh, 30 years ago or 40 years ago, I rode an elephant. You know, so it was did I, 20, 15 um, years ago. Okay. You didn't know. No, and, and ch times change and we become more aware. Um, there's, there are places here that are doing wonderful work with elephants. Uh, I would rather see, and uh, I'm probably the wrong person because I'm not involved enough with it, and I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes. Um, they're, they're, but there are people doing wonderful things with elephants. You can't just let them go out into the wild and say, let them all go, go free. But I don't like seeing elephants chained up ever. Um, yeah. and I mean, uh, or any animals and things. see that my I have always uh, it's sad to see the, the one play hopefully I don't get shot for this one uh, that's sad to see when you you know when you drive to pretty much like after you've left Camel and then you're coming down and you're going to go up the hill to Kalim and you see them chained mm. on the left mm. whatever that place is mm. cannot be good mm. Okay, no comment. My my office. Um, you probably see that. Power is that, is is next, that very is that close to Farang it. or Thai owned or I'm gonna assume it's probably. Okay. Anyway, so I, we all, all want to survive. We want. I go did deep. a guided tour with some Brazilian people yeah. in one elephant mm -hmm. sanctuary, um, and the lady was explaining that by law, here in Thailand, they have to have a house, their house, their room, yes, or yeah. or they need to be. Um, Oh, you just chained up? Yes, uh, in something. They cannot yep. be, especially to sleep, yes, they cannot. Well, I think there's a guy, Cam, he's doing Phuket Elephant Sanctuary. It's kind of uh, up here. I, uh, this one, I think, is, is nice. He, they're saying that they basically, the money they raise, it's like, they. it's not cheap to keep an elephant. No. You got to feed these things. So a lot of the money goes, uh, of course, they're going to make profits. I mean, they got to eat too. And um, they eat like, uh, 18, no, I mean, I, 16, like, 18 hours per day. They eat, eat, eat. The but I mean, the, the people to run the business as well, like they need to survive. Sure. And Look, I, I think um, there, there's a group of people around at the moment who are, mm -hmm. are really involved with these different elephant parks. And, and some of them are great and some of them aren't. Nothing ever happens overnight. It, it, it's a long-term thing. Uh, you can't just unchain. I can't walk along and unchain all of the elephants. No. Otherwise, we're going to have elephants getting hit by cars and 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 attacking people and doing things because we don't know about elephants. I mean, it's great for me to say I don't like seeing elephants chained. Nobody likes to see any animal chained up. But um, by just going along and unchaining them doesn't solve the problem. Uh, or or saying we'll close down all of the animal uh, the elephant riding places. There has to be a solution for where the elephants go, yeah. and this is going. All these things take years, and those people who work in those elephant uh, parks have to, because the elephants have to have a mahout to to look after them. So, you know, these these are long. And they have to be things. with them. The the it's ma, mamut, mahout, mahout, ma, 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 ma. And they say that the family, the mahout family, take take 
uh, look after the, the the elephant for the whole life. That's yeah, right. yeah, since yeah. they're ba- baby. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And but there's good. I guess there's good ones and bad ones as well. But uh, yeah. you know, it's there's a lot of elephants around, yeah. and I I don't believe that you can just take them all out into the bush and let them all go. Yeah. Um, but I'm not an elephant expert. Neither am I. <laughs> yeah. So you know. It, On that note, we <laughs> will wrap it up. Actually, I got yes. a quick call in 12 minutes. Today has been a wild day. Um, I don't know. I always get low. What was I saying? Okay. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, before we cut it out, we're going to kick it back to this camera here, Sue. Yes. And if you can just stare into the soul of your followers and let them know where they can find you and, and all that's all the charity stuff you're doing as well. Uh, we'll also leave links in the description. So without further ado, Sue, take it away. Okay. Well, Barnroompar, I'd love you to have a look at the website, which is barnroompar.com, B-A-A-N-R-I-M-P-A.com. It's a beautiful restaurant. Phuket has been good to us.org. Uh, and I think Living Waters is, is Phuket is also uh, it's something you should all have a look at. Facebook pages, the whole lot, you'll find us. Um, and thank you, Brendan, for having me. Thank you so much for coming. Um, yeah, all, all uh, Phuket has been good to us, Living Waters, Phuket. Um, I think you can use this uh, new website called Google. It works really yeah, well. Yeah, so If you type it in, yep. wow, it's amazing. It's a bit different from when I first started. <laughs> it makes life much easier ages. in the research. I cannot even, I'm always interested to learn how the business was back then, because for me, it blows my mind. Like without computers and emails and text, my, oh my God, it must've been very slow back then. No, it was normal. Normal, yeah. <laughs> well, that ends a- another episode. Um, what else do we want you to do? Oh, yeah, just subscribe. That's all we're asking for. Comment a little bit and maybe share. All right, N- we're out. Nice comments. Yeah, mo- yeah, nice comments. Nothing against, come on, nothing against us. All right, we're out. Um, oh, mushroom supplements coming out in case they already are not. So you can check that out to support us. We are the only medicinal mushroom, mushroom supplement company in all in Thailand that's doing these 10 to 1 extracts of this quality. Um, everything is sourced by me and it's amazing. I don't know. I'm not a good salesman when I'm not on on the spot and I think I need a coffee. Okay, we're out. 